You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. These podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you're not an authorised financial advisor, it's important you understand the content of this podcast may be difficult to follow, as it assumes you have the necessary training, qualifications and experience to understand the concepts discussed as well as the technical language used. If you still decide to listen, please understand the information contained in this recording is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. Any scenarios considered during this podcast are purely hypothetical and for illustrated purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. A recent bill passed through Parliament which addresses a range of issues to do with the tax treatment of debt benefit rollovers, as well as the transfer balance cap implications of rolling over a term allocated pension. My name is Craig Day, Head of the First Tech Team, and here to discuss these important changes and their advice implications is Tim Sanderson, Senior Technical Services Manager in the First Tech Team. G'day, Tim. Hi, Craig. How are you? Not too bad. Yourself? Yeah, very well, thanks. Excellent. Excellent. Now, Tim, we're here to talk about the measures included and get this in Treasury Laws Amendment 2019, Measures Number 3, Bill 2019. Oh, don't you just love talking technical? Such, such an exciting name <laughs> for a bill. A, is, it? Which actually is now an act, right? Because this has passed through Parliament. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but the bill makes a number of pretty technical but rather important changes to a number of these super tax rules that I just talked about. Now, can you summarise what the bill addresses for me before we start getting into the detail? Yeah, certainly can. And the first two are very much about some unintended consequences of the 1 July 2017 super changes. Um, That is um, some changes to the tax treatment of death benefit rollovers where there's an untaxed element Also, a change to the calculation of transfer balance account debits for certain cap-defined benefit income streams. And also just a couple of technical changes in uh, the downsize of contribution rules, Mm -hmm. um, just to ensure those rules are operating as intended. Right. So there's quite a few things in here. Now, you say these are to fix up things from the 1 July 2017 super changes. So... We're almost three years down the track and we're only getting things fixed up now. Is that is that really true? That's right, um, it, with the ex- exception of the downsize of contributions, which was a year later. But um, the government has known about these sort of issues for some time and has committed to fixing them. Yeah. Um, so this is the legislation of that of that fix. Yeah. I remember when those changes went through uh, back in um, 1 July 2017. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, wow, that the scope of these changes are so large and so comprehensive that people are going to be finding issues to do with this this legislation for years to come. And that's pretty much what's happened here, hasn't it? I mean, two of these issues are are really, you know, unintended consequences that, that popped out once the rules have been implemented and started to operate. And then people saw that in these particular circumstances, you get these quite unsavoury outcomes, I suppose you could call them. And so the government's just now um, moving to fix those. So if we we take the first one first, so you talked about um, death benefit rollovers and the untaxed element. Now, I think to really understand this change, we need to understand uh, what the issue was that the amendment is designed to fix. 
So can you outline as simply as you can what this issue is? Sure. Um, so if we go back pre-1 July 2017, not possible to roll over a death benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was that was the key change that, that introduced this issue from 1 July 2017. Um, now, a death benefit rollover um, is technically a super lump sum for tax purposes. Um, now, it's a death benefit lump sum. And the, the problem with, well, one of the things that occurs with death benefit lump sums when they're paid out where there's been insurance proceeds included is potentially part of your lump sum gets turned into untaxed element. Um, and that depends on age and service period, etc. cetera. Um, now where you are a spouse receiving that lump sum doesn't matter because all super lump sums are tax-free. Yeah, tax-free. Where you're a non-tax dependent, then potentially a larger amount of tax applies. Yeah, so that's where, that's where that 32% tax rate kicks in. It, Exactly, yeah. Now, mm. with a rollover, though, um, the super tax rules say that when a fund receives untaxed element as part of a rollover, then that generally needs to be included in the fund's assessable income and taxed at 15%. Wow. So we've got this situation where even though the person who's rolling over this death benefit might be the spouse, um, it still, um, under the rules, would need to be taxed in the receiving fund at 15%. Yeah, so you still go and calculate the untaxed element, even when you're paying a lump sum to a spouse, don't you? But technically, that doesn't really matter because the, the, the tax rate that applies even to that untaxed element is still is still zero. But exactly. when, when we created these rules to allow these rollover amounts, when you roll over an amount of untaxed element, so what happens there? I think it gets included in the assessable income of the fund, doesn't it? That's right. Yeah, so that's exactly. Yeah, so that's by rolling over. So by the government creating this new flexibility to allow you to roll over a death benefit to a different fund, all of a sudden, if there's some insurance proceeds in there, we we actually trigger essentially a tax on the rollover of fifteen percent. That's right, and that can be for you know death benefits that become payable and are rolled over immediately, or for an existing death benefit income stream, which is commuted and rolled to a new fund to immediately commence a right. new death benefit income right. stream. So obviously the government's acknowledged at some point that this is an unintended consequence um, and committed to, to correcting it. But I suppose in the interim, a lot of people have just been holding off rolling over death benefits um, just due to the fear that that could potentially trigger 15% tax on any taxable component untaxed element in, that gets calculated under these rules. Now, I think also a lot of funds, once we got that confirmation from the government that they were going to fix it, you may see that funds don't go and calculate these amounts, but still uh, for many people, they may have decided just to, to hold off actually rolling over um, just for the fear that you might actually um, create a tax on a rollover amount. Now, okay, so the legislation has gone through how do we? Um, how does it propose to to fix this situation? Yeah. So interestingly, you would think that the most simple fix to this issue would be to just say the fund doesn't have to calculate the untaxed element mm-hmm. um, for a rollover. If you think that, you'd be wrong, <laughs> um, because the way that it has ended up happening is that uh, the untaxed element, where the the formula provides for one, still needs to be calculated. But when it's received by the receiving fund, um, it is specifically exempt from the receiving fund's assessable income. Right, so they've just, um, they've just excluded it there. So therefore, there's there's no risk of um, a 15% tax applying on rollover. So 
Is that right? That, that's right. Yes. So um, now, you know, funds may be updating their systems at the moment, um, but you would hope that they are going to be applying the legislation correctly as rollovers are received, and therefore those amounts are not required to be taxed at fifteen percent right. when they're received. Now, and and sorry, uh, probably it, the the. Un- Sorry, you go. No, I was going. Well, I was just going to ask. Say, so, well, if we're if we're rolling over on tax element, though, does that mean that this receiving fund has to maintain an amount of untaxed element in that spouse's account? How, how does that work? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, and and the answer to that's no. If we've just got a taxed super fund which receives one of these death benefit rollovers. Um, the untaxed element is not required to be taxed when received, but at the same time, it doesn't maintain its status as untaxed element in the receiving fund. Um, if that receiving fund is a taxed fund, then all of the taxable component in that fund will be taxed element. So there's no need to maintain this untaxed right. element um, thereafter. Well, that's great news because you you can just imagine if at some point down the track they they were trying to take a lump sum or there was another death benefit that was going to be paid out that that could actually trigger um, a higher tax rate further further down the track. Now, does this apply to all rollovers of untaxed element? No, it doesn't. So this is specifically about the amounts of untaxed element that are calculated because of a death benefit um, containing insurance proceeds that is being rolled over. So to the extent that that applies, it will be not included in the assessable income of the fund, but other rollovers containing untaxed elements. So a good, an example of that would be I'm rolling from an untaxed government fund to a, uh, to my new fund. Um, those amounts of untaxed element are subject to the normal rules and are included in the assessable income of the receiving fund um, and taxed at 15% um, within the untaxed plan cap. Right, so funds are actually gonna need to identify where they're receiving a rollover um, that includes untaxed element, then they're going to need to confirm that that's actually coming from an untaxed plan or whether it's coming because uh, this is a rollover of a death benefit that includes insurance proceeds. So that's going to be an important thing. I, I would imagine if you're an advisor and you're rolling over and, and you get this hit with this unexpected tax, that would be one of the questions you would uh, you would going back to the super fund and asking to say, have you treated this as like it's a rollover from an untaxed plan because it's not? Um, so yeah, the important one to be aware of. Um, so what about people who've been holding off making death benefit rollovers? So can they now roll over to their heart's content or is there a trap there? Well, from a legislative perspective, yes, that, that's fine. Um, it is exempt from the fund, the receiving funds income. But I think given this change has only just passed Parliament, I think it is important to double check and make sure any receiving fund, you know, if you're doing a rollover straight away, just ensuring the receiving fund um, doesn't um, accidentally apply that um, tax due to its systems not yet being updated. Um, So just keeping an eye on making sure that those taxes aren't being applied. Yeah. and certainly they shouldn't be shouldn't be being applied under the legislation. Yeah. I think that's a really important comment because the legislation has only just gone through and a lot of funds will have automated systems. So a lot of funds may well now be saying, okay, well, we have to calculate these amounts. So when they come across, um, if, if the receiving fund has just got an automated system and says, oh, untaxed along, we have to include that in the fund's assessable income, a tax of 15%. 
Um, so that fund will need some sort of, in the interim, I suppose, a manual process just to identify and capture those amounts and ensure that they don't actually uh, aren't subject to 15% tax. So I know that's what that's Colonia right. First Aid has certainly been working on. We've been involved in that in the last couple of days since this uh, this particular bill became law. Um, now, what about people who've already rolled over death benefits since 1 July 2017? Do they need to contact their fund? Because these rules have been backdated to 1 July 2017, haven't they? That's right. So the rules, the legislative fix has been applied right back to when this started on 1 July 2017. Now, it's it's fair to say that probably the majority of funds have taken a pragmatic approach to this and haven't been applying the, the tax on death benefit rollovers um, since potentially as far back as 1 July 17. So, and many paying funds didn't even show an untaxed element upon that rollover. So in many cases, there's not going to be any action required. But in situations where tax has been taken out, um, look, the fund should have processes to automatically go back and correct that over time. Yeah. Um, but you do, you may need to contact um, certain funds if, if they don't take action. Right. So the practical takeouts from this is the, the rules have changed. Um, this unexpected tax liability that you would get by rolling over a death benefit is no longer going to apply. So if a client is with a, does receive a, a death benefit from the death of their spouse or something like that, they can decide to, uh, if they're currently in a fund that they don't want to be and they want to go to a different fund, they can roll over that death benefit. Um, now, if there's any insurance proceeds, now these new rules should confirm that they're, that shouldn't trigger an, an unexpected tax liability, but maybe in the, over the next couple of months, just a, a couple of prudent calls to the different funds just to make sure that they've got processes in place to, to capture this. Because I think the last thing you would want is for a 15% tax to come out and then you're having to go through a process with the trustee to, to raise, you know, complaints and uh, try and get that 15, 15% back. Um, yeah. Better, better off avoided rather than um, find yourself in that position. And, and for those clients that have already done it, um, you may well find that nothing happens at all, um, that they'll just start applying these rules prospectively. But if there has been some tax deducted, then once again, um, the rules are there to support any uh, refund of that tax liability. So moving on to the transfer balance account debit. So we talked about this. One of the rules included in these changes was to um, fix up the debit amounts for cap-defined benefit income stream. So can you actually explain to me what this issue is? Yeah, sure. So under the transfer balance cap rules, um, cap-defined benefit income streams, which include um, certain non-commutable complying type income streams, they've got modified rules for transfer balance cap purposes. Mm -hmm. So for example, their, rather than account balance, their special value was the transfer balance credit at generally at 30 June 2017. And where you fully commute one of those income streams, instead of the amount of the lump sum, uh, modified rules apply as well. So for lifetime cap defined benefit income streams, it was generally just the original credit that it applied gets debited off. For term income streams and taps, um, it was the new special value at the time, which was uh, the next annual payment um, multiplied by the remaining term. Right. So this has uh, always struck me as pretty weird, right, with these rules that, okay, I get it for things like lifetime income streams in terms of transfer balance credits and debits. We're not really working off an account balance, so we have to come up with some valuation some way. But for 
Things like term allocated pensions or otherwise known as market linked income streams. There's an account balance there. Why, why did they come up with this special rule for the credit in the first place and then an even what appears to be an even more complicated debit rule? They're just craziness. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I completely agree with TAPS. It's, um, it would have been a lot easier to count the account balance, yeah. um, whereas they've been treated instead very similar to, say, a fixed term annuity would be treated, which doesn't have an account balance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the issue that had arisen was when we're talking about a full commutation of a TAP or a term annuity, um, under the legislation that was originally uh, released, uh, the technically that debit value, which relies on the next payment that you are receiving as part of the formula, technically ends up being nil because there is no future payment after you fully commute that yeah. income stream. It was, it was, uh, now, there was, the was, government acknowledged that. Yeah. There was an incorrect example in the explanatory memorandum. Um, so that's really the issue that had arisen. Yeah, it, it was a bit of craziness, wasn't it, that um, we had an EM, an explanatory memorandum, that, that outlined what the government thought the approach would be. But then the ATO came in afterwards and said, well, that's the, the explanatory memorandum is technically wrong because... You apply the calculation after you've commuted the pension. So after you've fully commuted the pension, the pension no longer exists. So therefore, there is no next income stream payment owing. So therefore, you're you're multiplying um, technically a zero payment by zero term because there's also zero term left. So that's where you get up with this crazy nil debit figure, which was a real problem, wasn't it? Because if you rolled out of a term allocated pension, you got a nil debit. When you went to the new pension, you were always going to get a credit. So you're actually getting a double credit in the situation. So it was a real nightmare. So um, how have the government proposed to fix this? So they've fixed it in a way that uh, is not not really similar to the way that we had originally thought the old rules operated. Mm-hmm. What they've said now for taps and term annuities, for example, is your debit will be on full commutation. Basically, the original credit that had arisen back on 1 July 2017, for example, and then broadly they try and reduce that by any income stream payments that you've received from that income stream between 1 July 2017, the ATO is taking the view, and through to the time that you commute it. So that's at a higher level how it operates, original credit less the income payments that you've received, and that that is your debit. Well, so that's completely contradictory to the way it works for account-based pensions, isn't it? Because with an account-based pension, your income payments don't form or don't, don't create a debit at all. Um, but I suppose in this case, your income stream payments are reducing the value of the debit. So, you know, in a way that they count against you. Uh, it's just crazy. Kind That's of... right. You're right. With account-based pensions, income payments are not factored in at all, but they're central to this calculation for, for these types of cap-defined benefit income streams. Okay. Now, as we talked about right at the beginning, that we're, we're now three years, almost three years down the track. So... There will have been some people that have rolled over a term allocated pension for whatever reason. So I can probably think about someone that maybe was in a self-managed super fund. Um, self-managed super fund's assets are beginning to uh, whittle down. The thing is no longer cost effective or 
probably just as likely the members are now um, getting old uh, or less capable of managing their own self-managed fund. So they want to wind it up. So what you can do there is commute your term allocated pension and roll over to commence uh, a new one in, uh, so let's say, a retail product that has a, a term allocated pension product that is still open. Now, where you've got people that have done that post 1 July 2017, what's happened there with the debit value? Yeah, well, you might have had situations where people um, either didn't report or they have reported what the intent of the old rules were, you know, um, hypothetical next annual payment multiplied by a remaining term. Um, what, what the ATO did in 2018, it issued alerts to both SMSFs and large fund and basically said, we won't take any compliance action against you if you either in that situation, you don't report the debit and credit where you're rolling from one tap to another, for example, mm -hmm. or you report a value of a debit value that was something other than nil. Um, for example, you, you based it on that hypothetical um, previous rule. But what they did clarify, so they're not going to take compliance action there, but once the new rules were law, um, the ATO then expected um, that corrected values would then be reported um, or re-reported. Right. Um, so we're expecting communications from the ATO right. regarding that's at a time frame for reporting or re-reporting those debits and credits. So that's going to that's be a little bit of complexity for funds, isn't it? Because um, funds are now going to have to go back and say, okay, well, you know, Tim commuted his term allocated pension, let's say six months ago, um, maybe in September um, 2019. So I have to go back now and capture that commutation value, I then have to go and calculate all the income payments that the fund paid you, um, what is it, since 1 July 2017, we think, yep. Um, yep. and then re-report that debit value from six months ago. That's right. And there may be, you know, uh, it may be well uh, longer than six months ago. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, and also I would imagine that exactly the same rules are going to apply for self-managed fund trustees. So um, I wonder what you do there where the, where the self-managed fund no longer exists. Very good question. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, we'll, we'll leave that conundrum to the ATO to sort out. Um, now, how does, how does the new debit rule compare to the debit rule that we originally thought would apply? Yeah, so so we've just done some sort of high level analysis on that, and we will be looking to uh, write an article on this and do some more detailed analysis. But from from what we've come up with so far, it depends really on the characteristics of the income stream, including you know age of person, what the term was. Um, but the high level analysis had suggested that depending on the investment earnings within the tap um, that have occurred. Um, they can make a difference. So the lower the earnings, the better this new debit rule ends up being. And also the shorter the remaining term of the tap, um, the bigger the difference as a proportion between the new debit and the old debit. Okay. Um, yeah. So we're gonna, we'll probably put out a, well, we are planning to put out a, a paper. So that might be hard to kind of understand. I think the best thing to do there would just to really show some examples and, and trying to show an example on a podcast is really quite hard because people kind of get confused and they forget the figures and all this sort of stuff. So what we're going to do there is put together um, a paper in an upcoming First Tech Monthly um, that will explain exactly how uh, that commutation rule now works 
and how it compares to the old rules. So something, someone wanting to roll out, um, for example, from a tap to a new tap, maybe in a retail provider from a self-managed shoe fund, will have to take into account the new rules when determining their transfer balance cap position. So what are, what are the other considerations they should also be taking into account? Yeah, so the, the new transfer balance debit is, is critical. So considering not just the credit for that original cap defined benefit income stream, but the way the uh, impact this new debit will have on their transfer balance account. And then also the commencement value of their new um, income stream, which will no longer be a capped defined benefit income stream. Um, but a couple of other considerations. Um, yeah, obviously, as I mentioned, the starting balance of the new income stream will be a credit. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're in excess, um, you know, there is a special rule that says if you have an excess transfer balance that can only be attributed to a cap defined benefit income stream, then you won't have an excess transfer balance. So if I just had a tap, which is a cap defined benefit income stream, and it's led to an excess transfer balance, then I'm deemed not to have an excess transfer balance. Mm -hmm. That won't apply with any new tap that I commence now. It won't be a cap defined benefit income stream. uh, And therefore any excess um, will be an excess transfer balance. Now, if I've got an account-based pension as well, then I might be able to commute that excess amount out of my account-based pension. But if I've only got that new tap, then any excess may basically be in excess in perpetuity um, because I'm not able to commute that amount out of the new tap. Okay, so if I can summarise what what you just went through, just try and simplify it. So if I've got, let's say I had a term allocated pension in place at 1 July 2017, Maybe it was in a self-managed super fund. I've now decided I don't want a self-managed super fund any, anymore. I can't just commute the term allocated pension because it is a complying income stream. So I need to roll that over to a new tap in, let's say, a retail provider that's got a, a tap product that's open. So when I commute that, I'm commuting a, def, a capped defined benefit income stream. So I get this special value calculation, which is now using this formula that the government's given us in this bill. But when I start my new term allocated pension, because that's a term allocated pension I'm starting on or after 1 July 2017, that doesn't meet the definition of a cap defined benefit income stream, right? So what that is, is, well, we're just going to treat it exactly the same as a normal account based pension. So the credit that I'm going to get is not necessarily going to equal the debit because the debit is based off this special value formula whereas the credit is actually going to be based on the account balance of the pension when I start that new term allocated pension. So as a result, depending on what's happened within the fund and the investment return, the remaining term, sorry, the investment return and the remaining term, I could end up by rolling over actually being in an excess position. Now, what happens with an excess is the the ATO will write to you and say you have to remove the amount of the excess. But in that, that, and normally in that situation means you've got to commute an amount of the pension. Right. So if you're up and over that 1.6 million transfer balance cap, you simply commute back down to get your transfer balance account value down. But if all I have is a term allocated pension and as a result of these commutations and the commencement of a new tap, I've now got, let's say, a transfer balance account value of 1.65 million and the tap is the only income stream I've got, I can't commute that because they're non-commutable. So therefore, I have an ongoing excess. Is that what you were saying? Exactly. Right. So now that's interesting as well, because you might look at that and think, well, that's a really bad outcome. But there's a slight 
little change here, isn't it, to do with the, the defined benefit income cap? That's right. So while that may be a disadvantage there, um, any new cap, sorry, any new tap that you commence um, won't be subject to what's called the defined benefit income cap. Um, and what that is, is where you've got cap defined benefit income streams and you're receiving overall from those more than $100,000 in income per year, then there can be additional taxation um, generally that will apply to part of the amount you receive above $100,000 per year. Yeah, what do they do? They normally take, what is it, 50% of the income payment over $100,000? That's right, in yeah. most cases. So uh, any new tap that you commence on or after 1 July 2017, not a cap defined benefit income stream, so won't be subject to that uh, additional taxation. So, so that's important too, isn't it? So even if I go back to that scenario where by rolling over, I end up in this um, perpetual surplus situation, um, that's going to have tax implications for the member. But on the flip side, they're not going to be subject to this defined benefit income cap. So therefore, a lot less of their pension income may now be subject to tax because if it's going to be treated as a normal account-based pension, so over age 60, 100% tax-free, even though you get this perpetual excess situation going on, that's more than offset by the fact that you no longer have to pay income on your pension payments for that proportion that is up and over $100,000. Interesting. Now, um, so obviously, um, if you look someone that's looking at rolling over a term allocated pension or something like that, want to understand how all this works, the, the really important thing here will be to go back and have a look at that article or give us a call on the tech team or we can run through things for you. Now, moving on to the next change. So there, you mentioned right at the beginning, um, we've got some changes to the downsizer contribution. Yeah, and these are just some really kind of technical changes that just make the, make the rules operate as intended. So I'll just run through those briefly. Um, there was an issue where, um, and obviously you, to meet the downsizer contribution rules, you have to have like a qualifying main residence um, that, that you or your spouse own or you own jointly that qualifies for a part main resident ex residence exemption. Mm -hmm. um, if you held that main residence and it, it didn't qualify because it was a pre-CGT asset, um, then you would still meet the downsizer contribution rules. Mm -hmm. But where your spouse alone owned that property and it was pre-CGT, it didn't technically qualify. Yeah. So the first change just fixes that and says that if, if your spouse owned the property and it was pre-CGT, then for main residence purposes, as long as it would have qualified if it was post-CGT, then that's okay. Right. Um, the, the second change is just to ensure that um, downsizer contributions that your spouse has made from a previous property won't reduce your eligible proceeds in order to make a downsizer contribution from the home that you're currently selling. So that was a technical problem as well. Um, and also the rules have been amended to confirm that the CGT market value substitution rules um, generally don't apply in the case of a downsizer contribution. Right. So to give you an example of, of why that would matter, um, and, it, and it was the intention of the rules to always operate in this way, but if I, um, for example, gift a property, an eligible property to uh, a related party, for example, a, a family member, or sell it at a lower amount than its market value, um, then under the market value substitution rules, uh, I'm deemed to receive capital proceeds 
of the market value, mm -hmm. not of that reduced amount that I've actually received. Right, um, okay. But for downsizer contribution rule purposes, um, the rules are, are basically, the new rule is basically confirming when it comes to making that downsizer contribution, it's only that reduced amount that you've actually received or nothing in the case of a gift that can actually be contributed wow. as a downsizer so, contribution. So what you're saying there is I can't give a property to someone. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Um, and then say, so, well, the property was were actually had a market value of $300,000. Market value substitution rule would therefore allow me to make a downsizer contribution of $300,000. What they're saying here is, no, 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 you didn't get anything and we're not going to apply the market value substitution rule here to you. So therefore, your proceeds are actually zero. So therefore, you can make a downsizer contribution of zero. Exactly. Yeah, okay. And then finally, I think they made some changes to the testamentary trust rules. Yeah, and look, this is just really an integrity measure. And look, uh, probably in the majority of cases, the rules were already operating in this way anyway. Um, yeah. But a, a minor child can benefit from adult marginal tax rates in relation to income they earn from a testamentary trust. Um, and what this legislative change just clarifies is that that concession... Um, rather than penalty tax rates applying, only applies to the extent that the income in that testamentary trust comes from assets that have come through from the deceased estate into the testamentary trust and not from other sources. Um, so, for example, if, if you've got income assets that have gone through into a testamentary trust from the deceased estate, but then also you get property or cash transferred in from a family trust at a later time, um, income from that additional property and cash won't qualify for the concessional tax treatment. Yeah, well, so when you say it's it's just clarifying, um, I, that would have been the way I actually interpret those rules right from the very beginning, that it could only ever be those um, those assets that went from the estate into that test future trust for those children and the income off that that would get that concessional tax treatment. So it's really just removing any doubt that that is actually the rule. That's what that change is designed to do. Agree, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, I think that wraps it up, Tim. Thanks so much. No problem. Great to be here. No problems. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the First Tech Podcast. Please remember, these podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you're not an authorised financial advisor, you need to remember that any scenarios considered during this podcast were for purely hypothetical and illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. And finally, you should read the relevant product disclosure statement before making any investment decision and once again consider talking to a financial advisor. While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be reliable and accurate, no person, including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited or Commonwealth Bank Group of Companies, accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.